That is a very timely word. I think everyone would agree that we are living in a time of increased polarization and division. You see this playing out with clashes between the nations. You see it happening real time right now in our own political system. And unfortunately, we continue to see this happening in the church. Just a couple of weeks ago, the United Methodist Church, which is one of the largest denominations in the world with 12 million members. Here in America, they have 7 million members. They proposed a, a split in the denomination over the issue of sexuality. And some of these divisions are, are decades old, but lately something has caught my eye that I think that we need to talk about. In the last few years in particular, there seems to be a growing conflict between the generations. Uh, there seems to be an all-out war today between the baby boomers on one side and the millennials and, and Zoomers on the other side. Now, to help you understand the generations better, uh, the ages, I have this list that shows the breakdown behind me. Tensions have been brewing for some time. Uh, for several year, years now, the, the older generations have been accusing uh, millennials and the young people of being soft, how they're always looking for things to be handed to them, how they never want to grow up. And they've come up with a, a label for that. And they call them snowflakes. Now, snowflakes actually is a derogatory term. It's a, a slang term. It, it implies that someone has an unwarranted sense of entitlement or they're overly emotional or easily offended or they're, they're not able to deal with opposing opinions. In fact, if you can believe it, millennials have actually been accused of eliminating entire industries. Uh, in an article from 2017, the author list. 70 things he claims are in danger because of millennials. And here's a, just a sample. He says that bar soap is in danger because of millennials, that they must not use bar soap when they, when they clean. He says lunch, lunch is in danger. I guess millennials don't go out to lunch. Uh, the, the Olympics. The Olympics is in danger because millennials are not on board. Uh, the European Union is about to implode because... Millennials don't support it. And finally, the last thing on his list that he says is in danger because of millennials, he says is, is everything. <laughs> now, these are obviously tongue-in-cheek, and we can laugh. And Many of the critiques that are leveled against millennials are some of the same things that every generation has had to deal with from their elders. But in the last year or so, millennials and Zoomers have had enough, and they've clapped back with the term, OK, Boomer. Now, OK Boomer has become a, a retort to uh, older people who, in their minds, they just don't get it. They don't, they don't understand what they're dealing with, and it's become a rallying cry for millions of fed-up young people. Now, one of the things that concerns me is you're starting to see this kind of generational critique enter into Christian conversations. And when we begin to adopt the attitudes and the language of the culture when we speak about our children and our young people, something has gone very wrong. And when we consider what our kids are up against today, it should wake us up and it should break our hearts. Our young people today are facing pressures that were not even invented when we were their age. Consider this. U.S. 
teen and young adult suicide rates right now are the highest on record. Uh, it's the second leading cause of death of adolescents and young adults, and there's been a huge spike since 2010. Uh, just Friday at South Oldham High School, our oldest son, Joseph, had to participate in a lockdown drill in case of an active shooter at schools. And, and what they do is they, they, they close the door, they barricade it, they get really quiet, and they, they scoot over to one side so, that, so, hope, hope, so the shooter hopefully won't notice them. Now, children today are exposed to sexual languages and images and behavior before they're, before they're ever ready to handle that. And most children are hearing about sex from their peers by age 8. The average child is exposed to pornography by age 10 or 11, and as they grow over, it has a devastating effect on their understanding of sexuality. Are you hearing me? This is a crisis, and I, for one, am not okay with it. And there's an all-out war on our young people today like never before. And listen, we need to engage this battle with the same sense of purpose and intensity that our enemy has. Revelation 12, 17 says, Then the dragon became furious with the woman and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring, on those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. And in this war for our kids, we can't afford any more friendly fire where we destroy our own. What our young people don't need right now is criticism, judgment, and impatience. But what they do need is they need the loving, intentional investment in their lives from those of us who are older and who know better. Many of our young people have bought into the lie that their life is just one insignificant story amongst millions of others. And they need to know that they are not an accident, that they have an incredible value and purpose simply because they are made in the image of God. And it's our responsibility to let the next generation know that they have a part to play in the most beautiful, grand, epic, true story of all. How effective we are in our job of passing on the faith to the next generation will depend in large part on our perspective and our attitude. See, this is not something that we have to do. This is something that we get to do. Right? It's not a burden. It's a privilege. God is the God of the generations. He's the God of Abraham Isaac and Jacob, and he's the God of boomers, Gen X, and millennials, and the list goes on. Because every generation, every generation matters to God. And my hope for this message today is that there's a fresh revelation to you that we all have a, a part to play in God's story that's still being written. And second, I hope this revelation will provoke you to action, to pass on the faith to the next generation, because the stakes are very high. My main text today will be Psalm 78, 1 through 8. And as always, before we dive in, let's uh, set the stage with some context. Turn your Bible to, to Psalm 78, and when you do that at the top, your Bible may have a superscript at the top, and say it says, a Moscow of Asaph. And a, a Moscow is literally a song of Wisdom, which is simply a poetic song that is meant to instruct or to teach. 
Now, Asaph was a prominent Levite worship leader and minister in King David's court, and he was in the bloodline, obviously, of the tribe of Levi. And Psalm 78 is one of the longest psalms uh, in the Psalter. It's 72 verses in total, and I encourage you to read that in full this week. It's very rich in poetic language, and Asaph takes us on a brief history tour, hitting key highlights, recounting Israel's journey from slavery to the Davidic kingdom. And throughout all of Israel's past, there's a repeated pattern, we've talked about it recently, that shows that God has been faithful to his covenant promises and how he's merciful to rescue Israel in the face of repeated disobedience and chronic unbelief. This is Israel's story. And this is our story. And it's so important that we remember that God is faithful to his character and to his promises, not just in history, but right here, right now, today, for you and for me. So today in Psalm 78, we're going to see two things. First, we're going to see a beautiful declaration and a commitment to pass along the faith to the next generation. And second, we will see a serious warning of what happens when we don't. One commentator had an excellent way of summarizing the theme of this passage. He says, it's to protect the future by remembering the past. Psalm 78, verse 1. Give ear, O my people, to my teaching. Incline your ears to the words of my mouth. I will open my mouth in a parable. I will utter dark sayings from of old, things that we have heard and known that our fathers have told us. We will not hide them from their children, but tell them to the coming generation the glorious deeds of the Lord and His might and the wonders that He has done. He has established a testimony in Jacob and appointed a law in Israel, which He commanded our fathers to teach their children that the next generation might know them, the children yet unborn, and arise and tell them to their children so that they should set their hope in God and not forget the works of God, but keep His commandments, and that they should not be like their fathers, a stubborn and rebellious generation, a generation whose heart was not steadfast, whose spirit was not faithful to God. Here in verse 1, the author gives a call to the people to listen Pay attention, he says, to incline your ear, which means to literally stretch your ear. And it's a poetic way of saying that you need to listen with the purpose of understanding and application. In other words, don't let this go in through one ear and out through the other. You need to hear what I'm saying. In, Psalm, in verse 2, he says that he's going to open his mouth in a parable. He'll utter dark sayings from of old and and he's, he's saying that his way of communication will be parables or, or dark sayings. Another translation uses the word riddles. In other words, these are words of wisdom that you need to be fully engaged to understand. You need to seek the meaning diligently using your imagination. This isn't going to be spoon-fed to you. And as we heard a, a couple of weeks ago from Pastor Carroll, our imagination is a, a God-given gift to us that we should use for his glory. Notice here the author says, I will open my mouth. The author is taking ownership for his personal responsibility to pass on the faith to the next generation. And then he says in verse 4, we will tell the next generation. 
So notice the responsibility to pass on the faith to the next generation is both a personal call and a corporate call. The parables, these words of wisdom and testimonies, these are things that they're not secret, they're not hidden, but they're things that have been passed down to us. In verse 4, it says he he was not hide them, and he'll talk about the Lord and his deeds of mind and the wonders. And all of redemptive history is theological. In the case of ancient Israel, the glorious deeds and the mighty wonders reveal God's unfailing love, his mercy, and his patience with his people. And these these Old Testament references to to God's mighty deeds, it traces all the way back. And here are the references, uh, the exodus and the deliverance from slavery through Egypt, uh, his miraculous provision of food and water in the desert, uh, God's presence and his leadership and his guidance in fire and in cloud, and the conquest of the promised land. And all these are a permanent part of the, the theological and cultural DNA of Israel. This is their story, and this is our spiritual heritage. And for many of us, there are family stories that we've heard many times, and it's in the repetition of hearing these stories that you get a sense of, of your own history and your, your own identity. And these stories of God's faithfulness and the lives of our family, they're, they're just as important to us, informing us, just as knowing God's formative work in, in biblical history. And these testimonies are powerful faith builders. God has done some amazing and miraculous things that we need to pass on to our children and grandchildren. One of the things that I love doing these days is to just stop by my mom's house uh, unannounced and we hang out for a couple of hours with no no agenda. We've got nowhere to go. And it's during those times that I get to hear a lot of her story. My mom, like a lot of people in her generation, she, know, she didn't have the best childhood. And when she tells her stories, I can get a, a sense, I can get a, a feel for the place and the time and the, the interesting characters in the neighborhood. One of the, the things that I love about these stories, though, is how you can also see the hand of God and how he sovereignly moved in her life throughout the years in her childhood. And one of the stories I hear often about is about Miss Snyder. When my mom was five or six years old, she lived on, on Market Street downtown, and one of her neighbors was an older, shut-in woman uh, who she would often visit. Um, she would show my mom her garden and uh, show her about roses. She would send her on uh, little errands to the store and get some pocket change. But she also had a, a, a special area, a, a prayer room. Uh, where she would visit often. That's where she would spend time with God. And my mom says that Miss Snyder always would share something about God, about his character, uh, about how you can know him, about how you can talk to him in prayer. And those, those little visits had a huge impact on my mom. These were life-giving moments that helped sustain my mom through some rough times when she was growing up. And, and those times, uh, with Miss Snyder were her first small steps toward the Lord. But she still talks about those moments 70 years later like they were yesterday. And those moments that impacted my mom have in turn impacted me and my sister as well. Because see, we have to be intentional about passing on our testimonies because 
They don't happen by accident. Mm. Psalm 78, verse 5, that, and that's what Asaph's reminding the Israelites of. He established a testimony in Jacob and appointed a law in Israel, which he commanded our fathers to teach their children that the next generation might know and that they would go on and pass it on. So from the very beginning, starting with Abraham through the time of Moses, there's been a command from God and an expectation that the people of God would pass along the ways of the Lord to the next generation. Now you see this in Genesis, and you see it really emphasized in Deuteronomy. So the verses of uh, Psalm 78, verses 1 through 6, give us a wonderful encouragement and a declaration that Israel will continue the legacy of passing on what they've received from the previous generations. Now let's move to verses 7 and 8, where we hear the reason why it was so important to always remember God's past faithfulness. And we'll also see the grave consequences when we forget to, to, and fail to pass on uh, the faith to the next generation. Verse 7, So that they would set their hope in God and not forget the works of God, but keep His commandments, and that they should not be like their fathers, a stubborn and rebellious generation, a generation whose heart was not steadfast, whose spirit was not faithful to God, in verse 7, in addition to being obedient to God, Asaph gives the purpose for passing on the faith. First is to hope in God instead of trusting in themselves. And second, that by trusting in God, that would help them to be obedient and to fulfill the commands. Because we will never obey someone willingly that we don't trust. And then in verse 8 comes the ominous warning of what happens when the people of God forget the works of God and forget the character of God. The author describes those people as a stubborn and rebellious generation and that their hearts had totally abandoned the Lord. Who's he talking about here? Well, the immediate context is northern and southern kingdom separation, but you remember a few weeks ago I preached on Joshua 24 and how, if you remember, at the end of his life, he gave one final charge to the Israelites to stay faithful to the Lord. And after Joshua died, there was still work to be done. The Canaanites were dug in, and each tribe had to rally themselves to complete the work of the conquest of the promised land that God had already given them. But the Israelites, as we know, failed. Despite their declarations and promises to Joshua before he died that they would be faithful to the Lord and that they would turn away from all the foreign gods. The story is found in the early part of Judges in chapter 2. After the burial of Joshua, it says in Joshua 2, starting at verse 10, And all that generation also, these are our Joshua's peers, they were gathered to their fathers. And there arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord or the work that he had done for Israel. And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals. They abandoned the Lord, the God of their fathers, who had brought them out of the land of Egypt. They abandoned the Lord and served the Baals and at the Ashtaroth. Now this is incredible, all of it. But what jumps out to me is verse 10, that after the buried, they buried the last of Joshua's generation, it says that, this next generation, just the third generation from the Exodus, had abandoned the Lord. It's almost unbelievable. 
The incredible miracles that God had performed, the deliverance over the years had faded and become a distant memory. How's that possible? Joshua, as faithful as he was, was not able to stop this disaster because the people were not united. They had begun to drift and begun, become seduced by the prosperity of the Canaanite culture and, and the, the foreign gods. And this began the dark ages for Israel. And Judges, if you read it, is the darkest book in the entire Bible. And one of the key phrases in the book of Judges says, everyone did what was right in their own eyes. And it tragically shows what happens when the people of God lose sight of the main thing. In our own day, studies have shown that in immigrant families, that by the third generation in coming to America, performance across the board significantly de declines to where there's no, no difference at all. Uh, and a, a, as the old culture and the values ha, have disappeared, this is the trend that you see. And, and there are many factors that are involved in this process um, that the studies have shown. But one of the things is, is that over time, young people become more and more Americanized. And what they mean by that term is they become more and more focused on themselves and their individual needs and wants. And by the third generation, Israel had done exactly what they said they wouldn't do. They had completely abandoned and forsaken the Lord and turned to other gods. According to the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, child neglect is defined as the failure of a parent or a caregiver to provide needed food, clothing, shelter, medical care, supervision, to the degree that the child's health and safety are threatened with harm. And many states include further in their definition that failure to educate the child as required by, their, by law is um, the definition of neglect. So what we have here in Judges 2 and what Asaph is referring to in Psalm 78 is spiritual child neglect. And here's the lesson for us today, if we're not careful, and that's the gospel is explicit, then it's assumed, and then it's forgotten. A philosopher from the last century has a quote that we all probably know very well that says, those who cannot remember the past are condemned to repeat it. So how do we avoid this fate? How do we prevent spiritual child neglect and make sure that our generations know, the next ones know the Lord? Well, there are two primary places to focus our attention. The first is the family in the home. And there are several verses that speak to discipleship. Here are just a few. Proverbs 22.6, train up a child in the way he should go. Even when he is old, he will not depart from it. Ephesians 6.4, fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Deuteronomy 6-7, You shall teach them diligently to your children and talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. And the first thing that jumps out from this passage in Deuteronomy 6 is that God expects parents to be the primary discipleship influence in the lives of their children. See, we can't outsource the raising of the next generation. We can't. And God has given us amazing leaders here at New Life for our young people. 
But listen, Seth and Judith are not the primary disciples of our kids. They're here to come alongside you and to support what you're doing in the home. At most, they have your kids maybe four or five hours a week. And see, our job at the church, according to Ephesians 4, is to equip you for the ministry of raising your children. And one of the things to note here that discipling our children is not just transferring knowledge. Okay, it's not just doctrine and theology and even knowing the Word of God, and we must know the Word of God, but that is not the end of discipleship. Deuteronomy 6 is a beautiful picture of life-on-life discipleship. So what does that look like? Well, listen, let me just say this. Life with children can be overwhelming. Okay, I know that. Many of us are households with two parents working and the stress of trying to make ends meet and getting the kids to all their school and sports activities and schedules can just leave you depleted. And for those of you who are single parents or grandparents raising your children, this feeling is multiplied. And by the way, you guys are doing a heroic job. And if we're honest, what we often feel like at the end of the day is like, God, I just, can I just get a minute? Can I just unplug and watch Netflix or, or watch the basketball game just for a minute? I just, I just need a minute, right? But listen... It's in these moments when it's least convenient and when we are the most exhausted that we often get these beautiful God-ordained moments with our kids. So the first thing that we need to do is we need to purpose to be available whenever they're ready, right? If you're, you're in the kitchen and it's midnight and you're making coffee and, and, and your son comes in and says, Dad, can we talk? Absolutely. I'm putting that down. What do you want to talk about? Next thing in life-on-life discipleship with your kids is we need to take advantage of everyday opportunities. Driving to school or going to Costco or uh, noticing a sunset or as you're watching a television program, doing thoughtful analysis of the commercials. These are all great opportunities to talk about the things of God. And another thing we need to do is we need to immerse ourselves in their worlds and in their interests. Now, listen, I'm terrible at Fortnite. Terrible. But, but every now and then, I'll go in and give it a shot. Why? It's to show them that I'm interested in the things that are important to them. That's part of relational discipleship. And from that deep relationship and trust, you can share how the kingdom of God affects everything in their lives. And when we do that, We make the testimonies, we make the Bible, we make the character of God and His faithful love real to our kids. And we have to be, next we have to be proactive, not just in sharing, but living the gospel with our families. One of the things also to point out in Deuteronomy 6 is that much of our growth in the Lord is caught versus taught. How we live, what we teach is so important. And so our kids need to see how we handle conflict with our spouse. Our kids need to see how we react to financial pressure. Right? Our kids need to see how we model confession, repentance, and forgiveness. And they need to see us struggle and persevere. 
Just like Pastor Seth said last week, they need to see that we are not going to quit our race. And one of the key takeaways I hope that you have from this message is that you, we would all examine ourselves. So let me ask you, parents, what are your kids catching from you? Is it mercy or is it judgment? Is it fear or is it faith? Is it love or is it apathy? Grandparents, what are, you, what are your grandkids feeling right now? Is it constant disapproval because they're not doing the way, things the way that you did? Or do they have your unconditional support? And to the young people, what about you? Do you see someone that's just trying to make you into a clone of themselves? Or do you see wisdom and experience and people who love you and want what's best for you? I believe that if we're going to experience everything that God has for us here as a church, that every generation will have to honor and respect every generation, both younger and older. And for all the parents here today, I know it's not easy. I often say that parenting is one of the most challenging, sanctifying things that we can ever go through. And I've never felt more like a failure than as a father. But listen, just because we fail doesn't mean we're a failure. And if you feel like that you're not where you are as a parent, I want to say two things to you. First, that's not who you are. That is not your identity. Who you are is not based on your performance as a parent. It's based on who you are in Christ as a son and daughter of the Most High God. Your identity is not about what you do, but it's based on what Jesus has already done. Jesus lived the perfect life that we should have lived, and he died the death that we should have died. That's what our identity is rooted in. The second thing I want to say to you is help is available. Hebrews 4 says that we can go boldly to God's throne for mercy and grace and help in our time of need. And thank God it's not just up to us. We raise our kids depending on the grace and the supernatural ability from God to do what he's called us to do. So the first place we need to focus our attention is the family in the home. Second is the family in the church. Now, New Life Church is not a building, it's not a, a service, we're a fellowship. More specifically, we are a family. And one of the great things that I love about New Life is how from its earliest, earliest days, we've been focused here on relational discipleship. See, we don't look at discipleship as a class or a, a program or a specific curriculum or, or study that you need to do, and it's just like it's home. It's relational. It's life on life. And you, you see that here in the leadership at New Life. Uh, New Life is blessed to have raised up leaders from within for decades. And right now we have four generations of, of preachers, and that's not by accident. And by God's grace, I am the man I am. I'm the product of men investing in me over the years. And that's not just true for the leadership here at New Life Church. That's true for everyone here at New Life. Take a moment and, and think to yourself. Who are the people in your life who have helped make who you are today? Who is it that you can 
look back and say, I would never be the person I am today if that person had not invested and stepped into my life. See, mentors are important. And many younger people have deep questions about life and about faith, and they crave the input of an older man or an older woman who's been there and done that and can show them the way. There's a cultural phenomenon that for the last 43 years has dramatically impacted American as well as global pop culture. Star Wars Episode Nine is in theaters now. And it just so happens that actually Star Wars offers a great illustration for what I'm going to talk about. Now, don't worry. Becky's talked to me. I'm not going to nerd out on you. <laughs> but why do we love it so much? Of course, it's the, the epic struggle between good and evil and the cool special effects and the, the fantasy worlds and galaxies far, far away. And like any great story, it's about the characters and their relationships. But as I was thinking about it, there are two important themes that are very prominent in Star Wars that connect to what we're talking about today. The first is the theme of generations. In fact, one of the descriptions of the latest movie is that it's the final installment in the three-generation Skywalker saga. And the second theme that's very important is the practice of discipleship. If you look at the movies, in all nine of them, the master-apprentice relationship is prominent throughout, both for good and for evil. In the latest trilogy, the, the hero is a young woman named Rey who discovers that she has uh, special abilities. She has Jedi powers, but she, she's on her own. She doesn't know who she is. Uh, she doesn't know what to do with these abilities. And so she seeks out Luke Skywalker as a mentor, and in an important scene, she says to him, I need someone to help me find my place in all of this. See, she has incredible potential and a desire to do good, but she's lost with no real identity, and she's trying to make sense of the universe, and she needs a guide, and she needs a teacher. And, and here's the point. There are so many people who kind of stumble into Christianity and our churches who are just like Ray. They've had an encounter with Jesus. They believe. They want to live the Christian life, but they just don't know what the next steps are. And I'm not talking about children here. I'm talking about adults who are young in the faith who didn't grow up in church. In our Love Thy Body class last year, there was a young woman, about 30 or so, who was in our small group. And it was really great to hear the perspective of someone her age. But what she said broke my heart. We were asking her about the, these, these issues that Love Thy Body was addressing and, and how it affected her generation and what she thought about it. And when, when we asked her what her generation was dealing with, she, said, she shared that what they really needed was people to engage with them in real-life relationships. She says that almost everyone she knows sits around all day in their house with the blinds closed, looking at their phone, sharing how horrible their life is. And when, I asked, when we asked her what she needed, she said, we need friends. We, we need older people to reach out. See, we need spiritual fathers and mothers like never before. 
And we, right now, at this very moment, have an incredible opportunity to reach the next generation. Titus 2 talks about how the older women in the church are to, to train and teach and disciple the younger women in the church. 1 Corinthians 4 says, this is Paul writing, I do not write these things to make you ashamed, but to admonish you as my beloved children. For though you have countless guides in Christ, you do not have many fathers. For I became your father in Christ Jesus through the gospel. I urge you then, be imitators of me. They're counting on us. So to recap, the two main opportunities we have on the faith, number one is the family in the home, and second is the family in church. And the key to all of this comes down to two words, priorities and time. First, we need to make commitments and then follow through on them. And second, we need to take an inventory of how we spend our time and see if it matches our priorities. And here's the thing about time, right? It's the one thing that we all have the same amount of. There's complete equality with time. And time, unlike money, is not something that you can go out and get a second job and make more of. Time is not something that you can put in a savings account for a rainy day fund. It's precious, and it goes quickly. And I think we would all agree that where we spend our time shows what's most important to us. So today I'm going to encourage you to ask God to show you your part in helping the next generation grow. Maybe you're more mature and you have time and experience to share. Your investment can make all the difference. Or maybe you're in high school or college, or maybe you're a bit older and you're new to the faith and you don't have anyone to confide in. Let us know. We're here to help. We will get you connected. I opened with a story about the conflict between generations, and I'd like to close with a story about hope and honor between the generations. Father Greg Boyle is a Jesuit priest who's been working with gang members for 31 years in East Los Angeles. Father Greg witnessed the the devastating impact of gang violence on his community during the so-called decade of death that began in the late 80s and peaked at a thousand gang-related killings in 1992 alone. He recently buried his 231st young person as a result of gang violence. This is what he says. Gang violence is about a lethal absence of hope. He says, nobody has has ever met a hopeful kid who's joined a gang. He initially worked on finding employment opportunities. He, He started an enterprise in 88 called Jobs for the Future. But when the jobs were not forthcoming, when it, when it wasn't working out, uh, Father Greg founded Home, Homeboy Bakery, which later evolved and grew into the nonprofit Homeboy Industries. See, today, Homeboy in- Industries is the largest gang intervention, rehabilitation, and reentry program in the world, welcoming thousands through their doors every year. 
And over the years at Homeboy, Father Greg has acquired a few nicknames. A lot of people call him G-Dog. Or they call him just G for short. But the ones who've known him the longest call him Dad. <clears throat> Here's what one longtime friend said, named Marco says. <clears throat> he says, quote, I'm just trying to learn from Dad, Marco says, nodding G's way. He just knows things. I have no idea how he does it, but I'm trying to learn. People walk in here all day looking for something. A lot of them probably just freeloaders, but Dad, he never sends away anybody empty. He always gives. Time. Bus token. Something. So I'm just trying to learn. It's powerful. Here's what Father Greg himself says about the generations. Unless you can give them safety and security, you're not going to make any gains. Here we say that they find this sanctuary here, then they become the sanctuary they sought in the first place. And then they go home and provide that sanctuary to their kids. And now, without really noticing it, you've broken the cycle. Now you have this kind of generational sanctuary where kids feel safe. I love that term. Generational sanctuary. Father Greg is a tangible expression of God's grace and care for the generations. How's that look in your life? How will you be an expression of God's love to the generations? You may not have a call of starting out and leading an enterprise like Homeboy Enterprises, but I do know this. There's someone right now who needs exactly what you do have. Every follower of Jesus, whether you're married or single, an aunt, an uncle, a family friend, a college student, we all have a place in this church family and we're all called to help the next generation grow. Because in God's eyes, every generation matters.